We are in the series on John, which was read to you on chapter 6, read verse through my life. I spent some missionaries in the interior, uh, questions about the future of my life. I spent six weeks in the interior uh, of the Congo, and that's actually where, when I heard the Lingala song this morning, evoked those memories of singing Lingala um, many years ago. And then we went to Kenya and stayed with a missionary who used to be a missionary in Ethiopia. And as we were getting ready to leave, it was our final week, and he took us out to an Ethiopian restaurant. How many of you have ever eaten Ethiopian? Raise your hand. Okay, lots of you. All right. So uh, we went to that Ethiopian restaurant, and you know, if you've ever eaten it, it's like a, the base starch is a pancake-type thing, little bread that they call injaira. And uh, it's kind of sour-tasting and kind of like weird texture. And uh, we sat there, and he just loved it and ate it. And we were like, this tastes really weird. Uh, but then our stomachs did not agree with the injaira. And for three days, we were holed up inside another missionary's house, um, having a bad time for three days. And I just covenanted that I was never going to eat Ethiopian the rest of my life until somebody invited me uh, here in Denver about five years ago to the Queen of Sheba over on East Colfax. Anybody ever eaten there? You need to go. All right. So I go to Queen of Sheba, and um, this is what uh, Grandma Zodi um, serves to, served to us. And I saw the injaira, and I had that kind of reaction, like, oh, no, but I, like, had to eat it. And uh, so I took a piece of the injaira, dipped it in the stuff, and uh, started eating it, and I had a completely different experience. And now I go visit Grandma Zodi all the time. Uh, if you go to Yelp, you'll see all these reviews, and all the one stars are like, it took so long. And I'm like, if you're going there for fast food, don't go to her restaurant, because she is the waitress, the cleanup staff, the cook, the checkout lady, everything. There's only one person that works at the restaurant, but she serves amazing, amazing food. My, my family goes there, and we pick out at Queen of Sheba. In fact, when we sold the sea, her chairs were so hard. She got them from the local Holiday Inn. But, you know, they had, they looked all nice like these normal uh, hotel ballroom chairs, but the padding was completely disintegrated. So you sat like on plywood covered by floral fabric. So if you go in there now, you're going to see the Providence chairs in her restaurant. Um, she's, she's just a dear soul. So that was my experience with bad bread versus good bread. In Jaira is not the problem. It's kind of how it's prepared. Right? It it's, uh, makes the complete difference in the experience. And I would say that within the Christian life, what it passes for Christianity, um, it can be bad bread versus good bread, and it's getting harder and harder to discern which one is which. I want to be a church full of good bread Christians. And that's how Providence started, and I think that's where we want to keep it. So I... First of all, I want to take you out of that passage and show you, number one, that God, Jesus demonstrates his love for people and his restoring power over all creation in this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, they all pull aside to this remote place outside of the local village there. And, and the Bible says that nobody had any food to eat. And so Jesus said to the disciples, hey, he goes, where can we get food that these may eat? And of course, they find the the boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And they said, this is all we have. And we don't have enough money to feed this crowd. The Bible 
is one of the only miracles that's recorded in all four Gospels. If you compare all the accounts, you get about twice as many details. But in one of them, it says it's 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's probably a crowd of 15 to 20,000 people. To put that in context, it'd be like the Pepsi Center full of people. And they did not have food. And I used to think, well, yeah, because they're too far removed from town. But why does a little boy have a sack lunch and the adults don't have the sack lunch? Were they just absent-minded? I mean, moms, do you ever leave anymore? I mean, the buggies have gotten bigger, the car seats and the diaper bags, like it's an operation and nobody leaves without two or three bottles and five diapers, right? Like, why are there 15,000 people here and there's no food? Because they don't have it. This was not like, whoops, we're too far away from the McDonald's. You are talking about a crowd of the poor and that Jesus sees it. And the Bible says that he has compassion on them. They're sheep without a shepherd. The best definition I've ever heard of compassion is your pain in my heart. That when you actually sit there and you start having an other's orientation with your life, you walk into a room and you just start wondering, how are other people experiencing this space? What is, what is going on? And when we see human need, love's response runs to meet that need. If you just keep doing that in your life, you're never going to go wrong. You're never going to lack for friends. Some people, I, I park a little bit here because in the work that we do at Providence, in especially the, the, the work we do with the poor, I constantly get feedback uh, from the Christian community about we're a social justice church or, you know, are you, do you give those people the gospel or you're just, I've, I've been told we just air condition hell if all we do is help people get out of poverty and don't tell them. I've been told that. And this passage is often used because they're saying the only reason he actually fed them food was just to show them that he was really God. It was a sign of his deity. That's the whole point of the passage. As if he did not really care that they were hungry and starving and needing food. But I think his sign here was not just, a, it was a testimony to his deity, but it also was mainly a picture of how he was going to restore the natural order over all creation. This was a snapshot that in the kingdom you're going to be fed and there's going to be more than enough. And kingdom citizens, when they see human need, they go and meet it. This compassion resulted in radical hospitality, commitment to people and to meet the need, and a lack of judgment. Mark, Mark actually talks about Jesus welcomed them. This is Jesus' hospitality to people. And you know what? He, he did not have to take responsibility for those 15,000 people, but he assumed responsibility to meet their needs. If you walk into our staff wing above the phone booth, I have that quote up there that you know, the pinnacle of Christianity, the Christian leadership, is when we climb up on a bloody cross and take responsibility for the brokenness in our neighborhood. Because you know what? In a culture of wealth and in this country, we don't have to care about the problems outside these four walls. We can be pretty consumed with our list of needs. But that's not what Jesus did. And he fed them until the need was completely met. The Bible says they ate as much as they wanted. It was good bread. He didn't sit there and have a discussion with his disciples about the fact that they were probably on government benefits or that they were lazy and didn't pack a lunch or that they just needed to get a job, right? He, he didn't have any judgment in his, in his help. 
And his help was also holistic. We actually look at the gospel accounts. One, time, one, part, one gospel says that he actually went and healed them. Another, that he taught them. And, and all the accounts say he fed them. This is actually the definition of true, true Christian charity. That we don't just sit there and help with the physical need. We actually encompass the spiritual need as well. And we, we heal where we can, right? That's, that's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the Christian church, those are often warred against each other. But I'm going to tell you, it's, it's all the same. And this is what holistic care is. God, Jesus never saw people as divided beings. There's the physical need and the spiritual need. He just looked at you as you. You are not this, I can't divide you into the physical and spiritual. You are a whole person. And so when we minister to people, all of that is connected. I think if all we do is view even the physical needs as superficial, but the real work is spiritual, we will end up developing an agenda in our Christian charity that is most unhelpful. I hear people talk about when you help people physically as if it's something less than. And, and it's often popular in the Christian church to say, we're going to earn the right to be heard. So we're going to go help people physically and earn the right to be heard. Can I say this? The moment you and your helped other people are trying to earn anything, you screwed it up. And if you're trying to get your rights in that process, you're going to really jack it up. And if you're doing all this just so you can be heard, right? I mean, it's, it's agenda-driven charity, and the Christian church is rife with it. We don't earn the right to be heard. We actually serve, lay down our lives, give up our rights, and we only open our mouth when we're asked. That's how Christian charity should be done. So Jesus actually performs the miracle. The bread is provided, and there's 12 baskets left over, and they immediately want him to be king. These are, in, in the narrative of John, these are signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is the true king. And they want to make him king on the spot, and Jesus rejects it. At the time, when it would be the easiest. He had 15,000 people packing out the Pepsi Center. He could have said, I'll take the nomination. Let's go. And they could have went out and knocked on the doors with their clipboards, got on the ballot, and he would have been elected. And at the easiest moment to grab the throne, he rejected it. They wanted a strong man. He was headed to a cross. I'm going to pause here, too, and make a point about Christian ministry. Jesus actually didn't feed the 5,000. He actually used a boy who gave his lunch as a gift, and he went to the 12, and they actually went and dispensed the food to the people. And he was using it, the Bible says, he was doing this to test his disciples. True discipleship in the Christian life is not just gaining content, it's also being involved on the word. And Jesus pulls them to a mountainside and says, let's talk about this. He didn't chastise them for their early looks like. You know, I said right now in our nonprofit work, we'll go on the retreat this afternoon to talk for three days because we're trying to scale this to help uh, other neighborhoods in Denver. And I think we regularly have doubts if it's really going to happen. It's going to take millions of dollars, a staff of 80 people, about 50 churches to partner to make it happen. You know, there's 300,000 people in the Denver area in poverty. We only help, when you take the whole family size together, we help about 500 people a year. So the need is huge. And we want to start our next location down in South Metro with 50 neighbors 
in the seats to help them. And we start in 37 days and we have four signed up. We're freaked out. <laughs> you know what we're doing? We're praying and reading our Bibles. <laughs> At our executive retreat uh, tomorrow morning, we will spend time as a group in prayer because you know what? It is out of our control. Jesus has us in a place where we need him to show up and we know it. And this is where your faith really hits the pay dirt, right? I can actually read the Gospels and I can feel the emotions because we're there. We're on mission with Jesus as he's building us into his disciples. Secondly, I want to show you that Jesus challenges people then to truly believe in him. Look in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He said, verily, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So if you look back up, right, he says, don't work for food that spoils, work for food that endures. What do we have to do to do that? Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the one he has sent. It is Passover season. They're on this hillside. They're all thinking about bread. Passover brings up these images of the Israelites in the wilderness with manna. And basically, Jesus says, I need to really know, do you truly believe in the one that God has sent? Do you believe in me? I am the good bread. When the average Christian, I think, actually listens or sees that word believe, they think of John 3.16, and they think of when they were six years old and they prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, and I now believe in Jesus. And they believe, in, inherent in our Christianity is this belief that the moment we express belief, right, that cements our eternal destiny forever with Jesus. And it has produced a bad bread Christianity. I call that easy believism. If I just one, two, three, pray after me, now you're good and you're going to heaven. I hear parents all the time saying, my kid prayed to receive Jesus at six years old. He's now 26, living like a hellion, but I'm sure he's going to be in heaven one day. I got bad news for you. As of right now, no, he's not. True belief will result in good works, and if it doesn't, it's not true. For as, a, so as a parent, I would start praying for their true conversion, that God would truly radicalize their heart. I, one of my mentor pastors, he had a 15-year-old son, and I said, hey, is your son a believer? He goes, we'll see. It's a great answer, parents. Are your kids believers? Don't put all your stock in the fact that in the children's church this morning they pray to receive Jesus. If they do, praise Jesus. But true Christians will persevere in their faith and they will act and live like Christians or they are not Christians. Don't settle for half-baked bread. Jesus did not come to change people's minds. I didn't believe in the resurrection, now I believe in the resurrection, so therefore now I'm a Christian. No, you're not. Jesus wants to transform the whole person to be a follower of his. Let me um, illustrate it for you. Okay, we have 
the issue of climate change and culture, okay? We have the climate change deniers. We have the people who believe there is such a thing as climate change, but it's not man-made. And then we have the people who believe in man-made climate change. We're going to talk about group three right here. Can you believe in man-made climate change and do nothing about it and say that you're a true believer? Can you? It's an easy question. No? Yes, you can. They're called jerks, <laughs> right? You can say you're a true, this is what our politicians do, right? They say they believe in man-made climate change, and then we see how they live their lives. Do they really believe in man-made climate change? I actually believe they do. But, but have they, has it really changed their life? If it hasn't changed their life, then we have to say then, you may believe in it, but something's not matched up correctly. What do we call that person who says they believe something and they act a different way? A hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? They act in contradiction to their stated beliefs and convictions. Can I say this is one of the, this is pr the primary attack right now upon the Christian church. Pew Research did a study as Christians. One of the biggest reasons people are leaving the church is Christians doing unchristian things. The clergy sex abuse scandal. They are saying one thing about biblical morality and sexuality, and this is how they're living behind closed doors. You were harsh on Bill Clinton in the 90s, and you're lenient on Donald Trump in the 2010s. Hypocrisy, right? It's just flat-out hypocrisy, folks. Call it what it is. I'm afraid we have condoned hypocrisy by our easy believism gospel. The number of people in the Christian church that stood up and yelled glory hallelujah because Donald Trump said a prayer and three pastors laid hands on him, and then he lives completely like a non-Christian. Folks, people see the hypocrisy of it, and all you Democrats are going, praise God, our pastor's talking about this. Well, hey, <laughs> hypocrisy is bipartisan, okay? The Christian church, the Roman Catholic church right now has Joe Biden on the ropes. Why? Joe, you say you're a Christian and you condone abortion, so we're not going to serve you the sacraments. This is the church calling on him saying, you say you believe this, but then how can you be for this? So we, this is what we get by easy believism. The mainline church has been hijacked, I believe, by the Democratic Party, and the evangelical church has been hijacked by the Republican Party, and we've just played along with it. Folks, this is not true belief. What Jesus is talking to these people about here is they actually wanted the benefits of Jesus and they wanted the food, but they didn't want the full Jesus. They loved his benefits, but they want to put their full trust in him. They wanted the feel-good Jesus, not the full Jesus. As I was praying yesterday, this thought came to my mind. Belief without behavior, if you could advance it, thank you. Belief without behavior is counterfeit. Belief with behavior is discipleship. I want to get this really clear. To simply say you believe in Jesus and to live a life that does not line up with it is not true Christianity. And we call it what it is. That is a counterfeit faith. Belief with behavior is what a disciple actually does. And the Bible bears it out over and over. Pastors right now are freaking out. 
because post-pandemic, every church I talk to is down at least 25% on their Sunday morning attendance. I just talked to the second largest church in our state. One of their campuses was running 4,000 pre-pandemic. It's running 1,200 right now. All these pastors are getting all of their graphics people to put up little memes about the importance of getting off your couch and getting to Sunday service. Can I say that's not the problem? If we think that's the problem, encouraging people to get off their couch to come to a building for two hours is going to solve anything, we are barking up the wrong tree. The chances are a good 25% of people coming to our services were fake Christians. They just never really had it. Because now they, they say things like, I don't really need the church. Like, you didn't get it. And you know what? That's fine. We are not full of consternation and anxiety here because we have a 25% dip in Sunday morning attendance. Our problem is far deeper than that. Because when Jesus, you believe in Jesus, he radically changed you and it flows out of your life, we don't have to convince anybody to come and celebrate with the people of God like we did this morning. This is part of your life. You, you live that way. Disciple, their actions are in harmony with their stated beliefs and convictions. Trust and obey. Belief and behavior. I put my trust in who Jesus is, what he did, and I align my life to live the way he says. Anything short of this is not true faith. The Bible says in James 2, a faith that does not produce fruit is dead. It is not biblical faith. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in him and you'll bear much fruit. The whole theme of John is that Christians love the light and live out the truth. This is not saying you can't have a bad week or a bad day or a season of, of prodigal living, but, it, but a true believer will fall into sin and loathe it. A fake believer will fall into sin and love it. And if, and if you are far from God this morning, but you're here, praise God, because something, the Spirit's speaking to you. It's a sign of true faith when you are loathing the sin that has overtaken you. At Providence, we are going to preach about and endeavor to live out a life that is consistent with the life of Jesus. If you say you're a believer, go all in. And you know what? Let's not focus too much on what's wrong with the world or the church. Let's just be disciples. And let's just eat the good bread of Jesus together. And let's walk this road and just see what God does. So I close with this. Jesus invites us to eat of him the bread of life. In verse 30, (laughs) this is a crazy verse. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, what sign are you going to do? Never underestimate our ability to miss the obvious in a relationship with Jesus. He just fed the Pepsi Center with a sack lunch of bread. And they're like, what are you going to show us? It's like, you know, wipe your crumbs off your mouth, bro, and just look in the mirror. Like, I just showed it to you. Jesus said, hey, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. It was my father who gave you the bread from heaven. 
The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Me, you will never want the full bread of life and drink his blood. You have no life in you. You either have the life of Jesus or you are spiritually dead. Augustine said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Ecclesiastes ends the whole book, says, for who can eat and can have an enjoyment without him? The only way you're actually going to find true satisfaction from spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst in your life is to give yourself completely to Jesus. Uh, Christopher West wrote a book called Fill These Hearts. And he and his wife had been married for a number of years and they were out to dinner and they were celebrating their marriage and she asked him if he had any insight into what was making their marriage really good over the last two years. And he reflected and said, yeah, I think I know what it is. I think I've been realizing deep in my heart that you cannot satisfy me. And she got a big smile on her face and says, yep, that's it. And I've been realizing the same thing. You can't satisfy me either. Can you imagine sitting next to them at the tables and people are like, my God, this place is headed for a divorce. No, they realized when you try to have a relationship satisfy what only Jesus can, you're going to jack that thing up. Because there's a hole in the human heart that only Jesus can fill. We're, we're in the Olympics. Michael Phelps is the most famous, well-decorated, uh, successful Olympian of all time. His documentary, In the Weight of Gold, he says, we are just so lost. 80% of us Olympians develop a post-Olympic depression. I thought of myself as just a swimmer and not a human being, and that's where I thought, why don't I just end it all? The gold medal platform is not going to fill that hole. That's bad bread. I think we're suffering in the church from half-baked bread, and it's bad. What religion with its benefits? You don't want a relationship with your Redeemer. You want a strong man to vindicate your positions, not a crucified Lord who calls you to serve. You want a Jesus who will get you out of the ditch, but he'll keep, you keep his hands off the steering wheel of your life to keep you from going into the ditch. You want to keep that control. You actually never know if you're addicted to the bad bread or the good bread until you have to pay a price for it. When you lose popularity, relationships, power, position, you're going to find out what you're addicted to. Jesus says the good bread, though, cures your hunger. Your spiritual hunger is satisfied by Jesus, and the Bible says also, I will raise you up at the last day. That's good bread. Grant Pesca had me over to his new digs, <laughs> and Grant has become a little chef, and uh, he cooked. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I should have brought you into my study yesterday, so... You know, I, I walk into his new place there on the sixth floor in downtown, and like he's got the sh cookie sheet there, and he's like, it's almost ready, Jason, you know? And I'm like, Grant, I never knew, like da-da-da-da-da, you know? And we sit out on his deck and overlook the city, and I start taking that bread and dip it into the oil, and the, mmm. I mean, it is good bread. It is good bread. But it's not eternal. Because the next day, I could have had just as much of the bread but I'm trying to lose weight for my son's wedding, and I couldn't. <laughs> if you worship bad bread, you worship the idols of life, they will eat you alive. But worship Jesus, eat of him, and he will make you fully alive. Let Jesus change you from a domineering leader to a submissive team player. 
Let him develop you from a casual friend to someone who will lay down his life for his relationships. Let him change your hunger for things to a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let him transform you from a power seeker to a person of meekness. Let him take your greed and make you a giver. Let him take your career and turn it into a catalyst for the kingdom. Let him totally transform your life and go get it. We are fundamentally at Providence. We are not concerned as to how many people, how big our church is. We are concerned with the quality and the potency of the discipleship life that you are living on mission for Jesus. And it is always potency and not size that Jesus cares the most about. Psalm 63.1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weird land where there's no water. As the deer pants for flowing stream, my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for you for the living God. So eating the bread, the good bread of Jesus. I think in, in the Christian church, sometimes we just talk about that as reading your Bible. On the wall here, we have the three loves. I think reading your Bible and praying is part of that. We love God together. And I think we should read our Bibles and we should pray and eat the bread of Jesus in your daily life to strengthen your soul and then come together in worship like this on a Sunday and celebrate us as we eat of Christ together. I mean, I just hear these testimonies and I, I hear the singing and, you know, I, I see Unsee over here and, you know, God brings the man from Lebanon, right, to be a software. The bread of Jesus with together. We gather with our small group. You are not going to go deep relationally on a Sunday morning during fellowship time and before and after the service. In our, in our small groups, this is where you actually talk about your work and your family and your relationships and your choices. This is your daily and weekly sustenance in eating good bread with other believers. And then we love our neighbor together through the nonprofit. This is the good bread of the mission of Jesus. All those together is this feast of the life with Jesus. Anything short of that, I think is you're selling yourself short on the full experience of Jesus. I'm, I'm uh, in the nonprofit. There was a shooting on my block eight years ago, and Daquan loses his life. They ask our church for, to do the repast meal. And there I meet Darnell and his brother Q. Darnell reaches out to me nine months ago and says, hey, somebody told me you could get a CDL license for me. Darnell goes to the program here. He just graduates. He's got a really great job, showing me his pay stubs on his phone. Now he's talking about buying a truck so he can employ his two sons and his cousins and get a little side trucking hustle going on. And then when I spoke to the class this week, Daquan's best friend is sitting in there. And uh, after we told the founding story, he walks up and he wraps his arm around me. And this is like, you know, I've known this guy for a long time. And he's been through a lot of valleys. And he's like, I'm so glad I blankety blank with you, <laughs> you know. And I was like, in that moment, you know, and a man walks up to me and he goes, I'm so glad I'm here. He said, like, I was ran over by a car six years ago and I was dead on the road for seven minutes. I actually stood outside of my body and watched myself and watched the officers pumping on my chest. And then I came back into my body. And he's got a scar right down the center of his forehead, you know, and he's there. And I'm just blessed as I'm sitting there going, you know what, these people are going to become family in our lives. This is the life with Jesus, and I encourage you to eat the good bread.
Of course, this is all symbolic of what Jesus, he's, he's bringing up memories in the lives of the Jewish people because it was actually when they were in the wilderness and Moses is on Sinai and all of a sudden God starts providing daily bread to them. Then we have the story of Elijah who took barley loaves and fed a hundred men with bread. But the Bible says then somebody greater than Elijah is going to come and he actually fed the 5,000 on the hillside, but it was just prepping for this, this time when the true bread of life was actually going to go up to a hillside and spread his arms out on a cross and then he was become the bread for the world. So I say to you, join with a group of people on mission eating the good bread of Jesus. I can tell you it's so much more satisfying than the bad bread. They have this thing in psychology now called the Parisian effect. Wall Street Journal had an article on it six years ago that all of these people who spend their life wanting to get to Paris because all the idealism, they've watched Midnight in Paris, they've seen the Dior commercials, and they save up their whole lives to go to Paris. And they get to Paris, and they walk the streets, and there's cigarette butts everywhere, and the line for the metro is jam-packed, and people are rude, and they're expecting to see these like slim Parisian models that smell like Chanel, like walking down the streets, and it's none of their experience, and it actually causes this depression. They've diagnosed it. The shock is too much to bear. They seek medical help. Look at this. Irritability, fear, obsession, depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. (laughs) You can look up the article. Can I tell you, when I throw out the good bread of Jesus, and you actually say, I'm going to do this thing and fully go in with Jesus, and you fix your eyes on the heavenly city, you will not be disappointed. You are going to find a group of disciples who eat of that bread that satisfies. It is Jesus Christ, and it is a city of true love and joy and peace. And there's no lines at the right light rail. There's no fear. There's no depression. There's no insomnia. There is the abundant life. Come and eat of this bread.